Uh, this morning, I want to uh, invite you to follow along with me in Isaiah and in Matthew. We're going to read a couple of passages together. If you're new with us today, we're in a, a series right in the middle of it called Remembering the Church. And in particular today, we're going to be talking about the place of children in the community of faith, children's place in the, in the community that God is building called the church. We live in a time of significant disruption and disconnection, and we've all experienced that in a variety of ways. And that's certainly true about the household of faith called the church. And sometimes in that moment of disruption, in that season of disconnection, we can, we can forget the grace that God gives to us in the connections that we have with one another. And we looked last week that the Holy Spirit has baptized us into the body of Christ. And this, of course, includes the children as well. Children have always been part of God's family. Lambs have always been part of the flock. Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And then from Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is dealing with a question from his disciples, which is an itch at the back of the brain of these followers. They want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom. And they're, they're asking that question because they hope the answer is me, me. I want to be the greatest. Maybe he'll say me. In Acts, or sorry, Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This internal jealousy within the disciples will explode just a couple of pages later in anger at two of the disciples who were looking to claim early thrones, one on the right and one on the left hand of Jesus when he comes in his kingdom. And at this moment, Jesus begins to deal with that internal envy, that wrong-headedness, that upside-downness that the fall brings about in our thinking. Who is the greatest? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom isn't that an amazing statement? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Unless you turn and become like a child, you can't even get into the kingdom. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and drowned in the depth of the sea. And then in verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. But what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine who never went astray. And so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And this is the word of the Lord. Wes Stafford, the President Emeritus of Compassion International, said, Every child you meet is a divine appointment. We've had that this morning. And we have that every single morning when we look our children in the eye. We begin to realize that they are in a unique place under God's hand in our own lives as gifts from the Father. You have probably, along with me, felt your heart shattered, angered, moved, not only by the scenes that we saw in Haiti, but also in Afghanistan, where you see parents lifting up a child, an infant, tossing them to a soldier, trying to get them away from danger. They want them to have life, even if it means that they're left behind and they will have their life taken from them. They don't want that to happen to their child. And you think of the grief, the anguish that's in the heart of a parent as that occurs. It has not always been true, though, that the world has valued children. They were often on the margins and devalued. Where did the valuing of children really come from in the world? To us, it's as normal as breathing. We would do anything we could to help these little ones. But that has not always been the case. And that's why what happens in this passage in Matthew is so important. It says Jesus took a child and he said this child is the greatest and he put him in the middle. Now children in these kind of public gatherings would have been on the margins. Children were not center. They were not in the middle. In fact that would have been very improper culturally to take the child and put the child in the middle. Jesus took a child on the margin And he put the child at the center. And he said, here is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. There's a notorious philosopher and ethicist at Princeton named Peter Singer. Peter Singer writes about what constitutes human life. And he writes in his books... That unless a person has a sense of the future and of the moment, that they are not fully human. And you cannot call them a person. And he says that because they are not persons, because they are infants, they can be killed. Because they have no sense of who they are, no sense of the passage of time. No sense of the future. And so to take their life 
is no different, he says in one book, than taking the life of a snail. And you think, well, that's monstrous. Yes, and that's one of the leading professors and ethicists of our time. And he writes, the notion that human life is sacred just because it is human life begins with the story of Christianity. Well, I finally found something that I can agree with with Peter Singer. The Christian faith does say that children are sacred, that children are simply gifts woven together by God and given this gift of life and brought into our lives in unique ways. And here, uniquely, Jesus says to these envious, angry, ambitious disciples who want to be known as the greatest. I want to be great. He says to them, let me show you greatness. And he takes a child and puts the child in the middle. He does this. He makes children our teachers. Now, here we are, I'm back to school Sunday, and you're thinking all these things these children are going to learn this year, you know, fifth graders with pre-calculus, it's going to be so exciting for them. <laughs> but the truth is, children produce adults on a regular basis. They are sent into our lives by a gracious God to grow us, to expand our hearts and Jesus takes this child and he says to all of the adults in the room, do you see this child? Unless you turn and humble yourself like a little child, you can't get into the kingdom. In other words, the child is showing you something. Here was my only concern this morning about all of these young people being up here. They were just beautiful and amazing. And the great thing about, you know, when kids are all, they don't have to be good. They just have to be cute. <laughs> right? But the concern that anybody who works with children has is how are the fifth graders going to be? Because the fifth graders, the fifth graders are cognizant of coolness. And that's especially true when it comes to hand motions. So, like, if they're five years old, it's like, whoa! But if they're fifth graders, they're like, oh, I don't know, man. I don't know. Because I am on the edge of cool. There is a humility to the small child. The small child just doesn't have the filters to know what to say and what not to say. When, when I was driving home after church one Sunday in Austin, Texas, my then five-year-old, youngest daughter, Anna, said to me, Dad, why do you pray before you preach? And I said, well, I pray the Lord will help me. And she said, why doesn't he? <laughs> Thank you, Anna. Thank you. No filters. No filters. <laughs> She could have, like, fifth grader would have said, pray harder, right? <laughs> a child becomes our instructor, our teacher in the kingdom. Children are our teachers. Here's the greatest. Because of this quality that the ancient world despised, and which, frankly, 
is despised in our culture too. Humility. Humility. Unless you turn and humble yourself like this child and begin to live in terms of that humility and relationship to God, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. There is a childlike trust in God that is characteristic of what it means to become a follower of Jesus, a citizen of the kingdom. I was asked whether or not we had children's church. I said, yes, it's in the sanctuary every single Sunday. Because if you are a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, it means at least this, that you have turned. Turned from what? Well, turned from your pride, turned from your sophistication, turned from your fears about what everybody else thinks of you and your status in a particular culture, you've turned from the kinds of selfish ambition that say, I have to be known as the greatest, the richest, the best looking, whatever. I'm the achiever to the person who says, I understand the bad news. The bad news is I was born in trespasses and sins, that I'm lost apart from a savior. And that I see him and he came for me and I'm confessing my sin. I've done things I hate. The things that I want to do, I don't do. And I'm sorry and I need a savior. And you humble yourself and you admit reality. And you have the kind of self-awareness that says if you search down in the deepest part of my heart, you will find what C.S. Lewis called about himself a zoo of lusts and passions which are running out of control. And there is no hope for us unless we have the Savior and the child is able to say yes to Jesus. I see him. I see him in his beauty. I see him in the wonder of his grace. I'm going to humble myself and say yes to him because children are our teachers. But that also means then that children are covenant members and church members. Look what the text says. Jesus says, Whoever receives, this is verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Sometimes people think children cannot have faith. But children do have faith. Faith is not based in intellectual superiority. Understanding is certainly an element, a dimension of faith. But faith is in its essence trust in a person. That begins relationally. I won't ask for a show of hands on this, but there are mothers sitting here in this room this morning who talk to their children when they were in the womb before they could see them. And they said to dad, you, you talk to the baby too. What are you doing? Well, you see, what's very important what we're doing, we're letting this child hear our voice so that they understand and know our voice when they make that journey into this world. They'll respond to our voice. That's exactly right. And I know that there are people in this room this morning who know Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and Portuguese and Spanish and all kinds of languages. And, and yet when you've got a baby in your arms, you, even if you've got a PhD in history, you don't look at that baby and go, let's talk about Magna Carta. That's not what you do. 
What do you start doing? You start looking at the baby. That's what you do. What are you doing? What are you doing? You're building a relationship. You're bringing your voice. You go, well, they, they don't understand. You're right. But they understand you love them. And the love of God for us is the foundation of our trust in him. That's why David wrote in Psalm 22, you made me trust in you while I was still on my mother's breast. This is why Paul writes about the children of believers in 1 Corinthians 7. Listen to this, the children of a believer, he says in 1 Corinthians 7, is holy. He said, Pastor, you have not met my kid. He's not talking about their behavior any more than he's talking about your behavior when he says you're holy. He's talking about your status, that you are part of the covenant, that this has always been the case. As we've said, God never looked at anybody and said, I will be your God and you will be my person. No, he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And whenever God enters into a covenant with someone, he does it with the person, get this, every single time, with the person and their descendants and their seed every single time. With Adam and his descendants. With Noah and his descendants. With Abraham and his descendants. With the people of Israel collectively. So that when a Jewish bomber dad looked at a little infant, they didn't look at them and go, we don't know what you are. Down to this day, no one in that community looks at a little child that's born in that household and goes, I don't know, might be a Buddhist. Could be a Muslim, I'm not sure. How will we raise them? See, Christian people tend to think that they don't really have faith until they go to church camp for the sixth time and they hear a dramatic message and it's wound up by the... I mean, how many, how many times do people get saved? Well, it depends on how many Christian camps they go to as teenagers, right? And so, oh, now I've decided, I have decided to follow Jesus. Listen, the Holy Spirit is at work in your children right now. And you say, well, I don't know how long that story is going to take. Have you read the Bible? How long did it take Jacob? How long did it take Isaac? It took years. It was generations. It took years in each of their lives individually, and it took generations for the story to unfold. But that doesn't mean that they're not members of the church. And this is why Peter on the day of Pentecost, when he was preaching to thousands of people, and they said, what should we do with this message about Jesus? He said, in order to cleanse away your sins, God has made a provision for you at the cross so that you could be forgiven. So here's your right response. Repent and believe and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the promise, listen to these words, Acts 2.39, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as God shall call to himself. And so they were baptized. And we read in the book of Acts of whole households being baptized. The people of Israel were, were baptized in the Red Sea, into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. How many babies were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea? How many of the Israeli babies were baptized? All of them, that's the answer, all of them. Every baby going out of 
Egypt towards the promised land, going through the Red Sea, is baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What is baptism? Baptism is the sign of God's covenant promise on our children. It's not the power that regenerates them. It's not some magic thing that once you put the water in, the spirit, water on, the spirit goes in. That's not the issue. The issue is you're putting a sign on them. And you hear God say about this child, you are mine. And then having baptized them, you begin to teach them and you begin to bring them up in the ways of the Lord. And that's because children are also our mission. Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 18, this is verse 10, see to it that you don't despise one of these little ones. I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my father. And then he tells a story about a flock of a hundred sheep and one of them goes missing. All of us as parents fear a child going missing. And that's true spiritually too, not just physically. And some of us sitting here this morning as parents or grandparents are living with the reality of the pain of a child that's gone missing from the faith. And you say, well, you know, I did all the right stuff. I baptized them, I taught them, I took them to youth group, but they're, they're not in things right now, and they're missing. There are a lot of reasons why sheep go missing, why the lambs go missing. <laughs> Sometimes they go missing because they've been seduced by a lie from the enemy and they chase it. Something bright and shiny over here gets their attention and the church looks pretty boring, frankly, and they head that direction. Sometimes it's because they've been wounded and hurt in the church and they blame the church perhaps rightly. And you need to listen deeply to the causes of those pain, of those, of those wounds, and ask the Lord to bring healing to it. Sometimes they go missing because they actually want to serve Jesus. And when they look around at the church, they conclude that we're just serving ourselves. There's a lot of reasons. I don't know what those reasons are for all the wandering lambs today. But there were years where my son, my oldest son, my oldest child, my son was, was missing. And then came the day where he was once again standing with me at a communion table helping to distribute the bread and the wine. Because there is a good shepherd, you see, who goes looking for lost sheep. And I want every parent and every grandparent here who's concerned about a missing lamb to know that there is a shepherd who will leave the 99 to go after your one. And he will not relent until he finds him and brings him home. And you can count on the good shepherd to do his work. And the reason for that is he told it. I've always imagined in my, in my heart that when he's telling this story, that Mary was standing over on the side because she was following along. And when Jesus started talking about a missing lamb, she went, well, I remember those days. Do you remember that Jesus himself went missing? You read about it in Luke chapter 2. Joseph and Mary had taken Jesus when he was 12 years old, and as they did every year, gone with their 
relatives, and the New American Standard says in a great caravan, they're traveling kind of as a community, this great extended family, and they go up to Jerusalem for the, for the Feast of Passover. So they're up in Jerusalem. And on the way home, again, they're traveling with all this, this great community. Um, they don't see Jesus on the first day. And then, on, and then finally they realize he's missing. Now, I don't know if you've ever had that happen. Can I just put it to you this way? How long would your child have to be missing before you were freaking out? Right? I mean, 30 seconds, right? They get in the wrong aisle in Walmart, and you're like, pull the alarm. Okay? Where'd they go? Okay, this is like a day and a half in because they understood the safe community that they were part of. But they couldn't find him anyway. We thought he was with you. No, we thought he was with you. We thought he was with you. Oh, my gosh. Now, it's bad enough to have a missing child, but imagine if the missing child you have misplaced is the Son of God. <laughs> I want you to think about that prayer time that night. Uh, Yahweh, um, I know you said you got one job, but can't find him. <laughs> and you know what's very interesting about that is like the angel of Gabriel did not come down and go, okay, look, he's in the temple. Just go over there. No, there was no, you know, divine GPS. They had to look for him. They had to go looking for him. Parents have to pray and parents have to search. And they found him. They found him. And they said to him what every parent says to a, to a kid who disappears for a bit. What were you thinking? What were you doing? And he said, I had to be in my father's house. That's how Luke's gospel begins. But it ends very similarly. It says that at the beginning of Luke's gospel that Jesus went missing and they found him after three days. That's the beginning of Luke's gospel. And at the end of the gospel, Jesus goes missing again for three days. He went to the cross, and he died. And he died to take away the sins. This is the good news that deals with the bad news of our situation. That Christ, by his death, paid the price, the debt, that we owed and could not pay. That he sought us in our lostness by going to the cross and giving himself to us and for us. And then on the third day, he rose again and came home. And coming home is what he wants every single person in this room to do. Because here's the thing. Let's remember how this story started. Jesus said, you have to become like the child. And the truth is, every single one of the sheep he's talking about in his parable aren't just literal children it's all of us and some of you have been missing you've been missing you've been far from home but Jesus in his mercy is reaching out to you this morning here in this room and online and saying I'm the good shepherd I have been searching for you and I'm bringing you home. I'm bringing you back to reconnect with your family, 
to remember the church, to come home, to get back to the flock where you belong. So parents, I want you to know this morning, the good shepherd is committed to your children and he will search for them and he will save them. But I want every person in this room to know you are a child or a sophisticated grown-up. One of the two. The sophisticated grown-up full of ambition looking for the status and acclaim that this world offers. And if you find it, you will discover that it leaves your heart empty. But if you'll turn and become a child and humble yourself and say, I need the Savior who died on the cross, you will find, like these children you saw a moment ago, your heart filled with so much joy because the weight of the world has finally been taken away. And the guilt of your sin is gone. And now you're reconnected with the God who made you in your mother's womb and has never left you, even though you left him. If you have been one of the missing, come home. Humble yourself. Turn and come to Jesus, the good shepherd. Let's pray. Lord. Good shepherd, you who seek and search for the straying lambs, see us, Lord, behold us in our need. You are the one who is able to save. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Lord, would you bring home all the straying sheep, reconnect all those who have been disconnected from the flock, gently carry in your arms the lambs. And we pray for all of our missing sons and daughters. Bring them home. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.